Our sermon text tonight comes from Luke chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there and follow along as I read aloud from God's Word. The sermon text is also printed in the worship order for your convenience. I invite those of you who are willing and able to stand as I read from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 32. The Word of God reads... Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. How many of you have ever dealt with anxiety? How about fear? When we're anxious, when we fear, what is it that we're anxious about? What are we afraid of? Many times, I think our anxieties and fears and worries are related to possessions. Think about that for a moment. How many times have you thought to yourself, I'd be happy if I only had this, or if I only had that, or if I were in a different situation, I could relax, or if I made more money, if I had a newer car, I had a nicer house, had more in savings. The list could go on and on and on, but I think you all get the idea. How we view what we have, or what we don't have. How we view possessions and money can contribute a lot to our outlook on life. And also to our relationship with God. Tonight, as we look at Luke chapter 12, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about how we, as Christians, should relate to our possessions. 
And if you're feeling anxious tonight about material possessions or really about anything at all, I hope you will see the freedom from anxiety offered by Jesus. As we discuss this passage, we're going to look at two main themes. First, we'll look at the wrong way to view possessions. Then we're going to look at the right way to view possessions. And finally, we're going to consider some ways to apply this passage to our daily lives. Before we discuss the sermon text, I want to do a quick review of what's happening at this point in Luke's gospel. Chapter 12 begins on the heels of a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Luke writes that many thousands of people had gathered around Jesus. The crowd was so large, in fact, that they were trampling on one another. And in the midst of this crowd of thousands, Jesus begins to teach his disciples. Through the first 12 verses, he teaches them to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, to be unafraid because God values them greatly, to acknowledge him and to rely on the Holy Spirit for words in times of future persecution. The crowd of thousands was close at hand, and no doubt many were surely listening attentively to the words of our Lord. And then... In the midst of Jesus' teaching on serious spiritual matters, something out of place happens. At least it seems out of place to the readers of Luke's gospel, and I imagine it seemed out of place to the disciples and to most of the crowd. In verse 13, someone from the crowd interrupts Jesus for a personal request. Now, in general, it's not unusual for someone to make a request of Jesus. Luke's gospel is, after all, filled with accounts of wonderful things which Jesus did for others. For example, through the first 11 chapters alone, we read about Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, restoring the lame, forgiving sins, raising the dead to life, calming storms, and feeding well over 5,000 people. We see Jesus proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to those held captive in sin giving sight to those who are physically and spiritually blind, and liberating those oppressed by sin, death, and the devil. Throughout Luke's gospel, we see Jesus proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, just as Isaiah prophesied, and just as Jesus himself told those gathered at the synagogue in Nazareth at the start of his public ministry. So, it's not odd for someone to make a request of Jesus, but still... And especially in light of the context, this man's request seems quite out of place. The man asks, or actually he tells Jesus, to instruct his brother to divide the family inheritance with him. While Jesus had been teaching about how to follow him, while he'd been teaching on spiritual matters, this man's thoughts had been preoccupied with his own personal financial gain. And financial gain at the expense of his brother, no less. I expect this desire for personal gain was the main reason this man had sought out Jesus in the first place. Throughout the series, Mark and Bo have been highlighting the theme of Jubilee in Luke's gospel. We've been focusing on the rescue and relief and rest brought for God's people by and in Jesus Christ alone. And maybe this man had heard something of Jesus' message and misunderstood the kind of rescue, the kind of rest, the kind of relief which Jesus brings. Perhaps this man thought the message of Jesus was about providing material wealth now. Maybe he had bought into a kind of prototype health and wealth gospel, 
which as we all know is no gospel at all. Regardless, the man's demand exposed the true desires of his heart. He wasn't interested in what sort of, um, he was interested rather in what sort of material benefit he could get from Jesus. He was interested in having his best life now. And this sort of thing is still quite prevalent today, isn't it? But Jesus, of course, sees right through this man's self-centered motives, and he refuses to get involved. Instead, he turns, the, he turns this man's interruption into a teaching point. Before the man's interruption, Jesus had been addressing his disciples, but now Jesus turns to address everyone who can hear him. And he begins to speak about covetousness, greed, and a wrong view of possessions. If you're taking notes tonight, we're about to get into the first main theme of the sermon, which is the wrong way to view possessions. As Jesus begins to speak about the wrong way to view possessions, he calls his audience to vigilance against covetousness. The ESV translates this call as, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Some other translations say things like, beware or watch out. And there's a certain gravity here, a certain seriousness about what Jesus is saying that we might sometimes overlook. Jesus is calling the crowd to diligent watchfulness, constant observation, self-defense against covetousness. And not just against one kind, not just against desiring the inheritance of a sibling, for example, but against all kinds. Look out, Jesus says, watch out. But why? Why must they and we be so vigilant against covetousness? Well, for one, it comes so very easily to us. It's insidious. It's crouching at the door. We must guard against it. It's dangerous and deadly. And without relentless observation, it can slip in undetected. But notice here that Jesus says the reason we should guard against covetousness is because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In a world that screams, what you see is what you get, and the clothes make the man or the woman, Jesus says, not so fast. What you see is not what you get, and the clothes do not make the man or the woman. Life is not about stuff. Having more stuff, seeking more stuff, relying on stuff does not result in better or more or longer life. Contrary to what we see everywhere in our culture, our lives cannot be measured by what we do or do not own. And an abundance of things only offers false security. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach notes that to define life in terms of things is the ultimate reversal of the creature serving the creation and ignoring the creator. Covetousness, greed, is actually equated with idolatry. In Colossians 3.5, in Ephesians 5.5, and in 1 Corinthians 6.10, Paul warns that the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. So covetousness, greed, the constant pursuit of more and more and more, it grows out of an ungrateful heart. It grows out of ingratitude and discontent with what God has graciously given us. And rather than resulting in happiness and security, rather than resulting in jubilee, The pursuit and accumulation of more and more only results in further anxiety and further enslavement and ultimately in death. And Jesus shows this clearly in the parable of the rich fool. As we look at the parable, I want to point out a couple things quickly. First, 
we see that the man was already rich before the year's massive harvest. And we have no indication from the text whatsoever that the man had earned his fortune dishonestly or that he had mistreated anyone. We also see that it was the land that produced the great harvest. The weather that year had been particularly excellent for crops. Just the right amount of sun, just the right amount of rain, just the right temperatures. And the harvest was not expected. So I think we can assume it wasn't due to this man's great skill as a farmer. It was an unexpected abundance. And the result was that the land produced so much that he had no room in his barns to store it. The massive harvest was clearly a gift from God. It was clearly a blessing of God's common grace. And how did this man handle it? Well, we know from the section headings in our Bible, even before we read the text, that this man is a rich fool. He's not a rich wise man. The man's a negative example of how to view and manage possessions. He's greedy. He's covetous. So how does a fool handle riches which clearly belong to God? How does a fool handle things which are clearly sourced in God's grace? What does a fool decide to do? Well, first, he decides to tear down the old barns and build bigger ones. Once these are built, he'll have ample room to store not only all his crops, but also all his other stuff. And with these new barns in place and all his excess safely stored away, he'll never worry again. He'll retire without a care in the world, and he'll live extravagantly on what he had earned, on what he had stored up, on his possessions, his, his, his. His soul would be at ease, and he'd be able to eat, drink, and be merry for many years. So he thought. The man was terribly mistaken. He had confused possessions with life. He had confused and abundance of things with security. As we look closely at the man's inner monologue here, we see his focus becoming very clear. He failed, or maybe he just refused to admit that God was the owner and giver of all these blessings. And he himself was just a steward. The man's focus was completely on himself, which is evident because he constantly refers to my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul, my, my, my. He says things like, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store. I will tear down. I will say to my soul. The man thought he could ensure his own security with things. He was only concerned with himself and his own physical desires and greed. Just exactly like the man who had interrupted Jesus. The rich fool failed to realize that his crops, his barns, his grain, his goods, even his own soul did not really belong to him. He had failed to realize that God had given him not just life, but had also given him riches. The man was only a steward of God's gifts. And instead of using God's gifts for God's glory... The man, the man hoarded them away for his own private use, finding fulfillment and apparent security in the gift rather than the giver, placing his trust in the creation rather than the creator, and loving only himself while failing to love both God and his neighbor. 
God calls this man to account the very night of his grand plans. The man's a fool, and God says so himself. All the riches in the world cannot serve him now. He had built his entire life on a lie. He had served himself. He'd been enslaved to riches, to greed, to always, always, always seeking more. He'd been enslaved to anxiety and worry, never thinking he had enough. He'd served the false gods of gold and silver and looked to them for salvation. He'd stored up much treasure for himself, and he'd held back from the one true God whose treasure it actually was. And then, when he finally thought he had enough, that very night the lie was exposed. The things he had trusted in, strived for, served, constantly worried about, God asks, whose will they be? And the answer is all too clear. They will most certainly not be the fools. The parable serves as an example of how we are not to view and manage our possessions. But please don't misunderstand the point here. Jesus isn't saying that things are bad in and of themselves. Money in and of itself is not bad. Planning ahead in and of itself is not bad. Rather, it's the constant seeking of things, the constant desire for more. The desire to find security and wealth, the desire to hoard things away and not use the gifts which God has given us to serve him. It's the failure to recognize that what we have is not truly ours. We're only stewards of God's gifts. And we are to use them for God's glory. The rich fool, brothers and sisters, missed the point of life completely. Life is not about things. Life is about the glory of God. The rich fool sought rescue and relief and rest where he could only find slavery and anxiety and fear. The rich fool sought life in things that could never give or sustain life. The rich fool sought life and found only death. The rich fool wanted to provide his own jubilee, and he failed miserably. Because true rest, relief and rescue, true life, is only available through Jesus Christ. After Jesus finishes the parable, he turns back to his disciples and he begins to focus on teaching them again. He's given the negative example of how not to view possessions to the crowd. And now he's going to address his disciples on the right way to view possessions, which is our second main theme for this evening. As Jesus teaches them, he is, in fact, teaching all those who will follow him, including you and I. His address uh, to his disciples begins in verse 22 with the word therefore, which could also be translated as for this reason. This is an important word because it points us back to something. And the thing it points us back to in this case is the example of the rich fool. Because that way, the way in which the rich fool viewed possessions is filled with worry and slavery and foolishness and death. Because that way is wrong. Jesus is going to show us the right way. He tells his disciples not to be anxious about their lives. He tells them not to worry about food or clothing or drink. And the great thing is he doesn't just say don't worry and then leaves it at that. He uses examples from nature which show very clearly why we should not worry about these things. Interestingly, these examples can be seen just as easily here in North Texas or really pretty much anywhere else in the world. Perhaps as you drive home this evening, 
you'll see some of the things that Jesus talks about here. As first example from nature, Jesus asks his disciples to consider the ravens. Unlike the rich fool, ravens don't plant crops. And ravens don't harvest crops. And ravens don't build barns. And ravens certainly don't tear down barns to build bigger ones. And yet, while they don't do any of these things, God provides for them. He provides water for them. He provides food for them. He cares for them. But there's something more about Jesus mentioning God's care for ravens that doesn't immediately come to mind when we read this passage. You see, ravens were considered unclean birds. If you have time, you can read about that in Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14. And God provides care even for unclean birds. And something else that's interesting is that God provides care and sustenance sometimes even through unclean birds. I think Jesus mentioning ravens here is also meant to remind his followers of how God sent ravens to care for Elijah, to bring him bread and meat in 1 Kings 17. As Jesus concludes his first example from nature, he reminds his followers that they are far more valuable than birds. And I'm sure that they knew that was true. And so do we. But how often do we forget or doubt or worry? And so Jesus reminds all of his followers throughout the ages of their great value to God. Jesus also highlights the inability of anxiety and worry to do us any good when he asks, Who can, by means of anxiety, add a single hour to his or her life? Now, we've all probably heard things like by eating right and exercising, not smoking, not doing something or doing something else, we can add years to our life. Well, certainly we can try to, add, we can try to live a healthier lifestyle, but even that doesn't guarantee a longer life. It's interesting that an alternative way of translating this verse highlights the inability of a person by means of worry and anxiety to make themselves taller. And either way you translate it, Jesus' point here is very clear. If worry can't add an hour to your life, if anxiety can't make you taller, then why worry at all? Why allow anxiety to take root? Worry and anxiety are completely unable to help. As Jesus continues to use examples from nature, he asks his disciples to consider the beauty of flowers. The word lilies used here can probably refer to any number of wildflowers that would have been growing around the hills of Palestine. And these flowers don't toil or spin. And yet God provides them with great beauty. Their appearance is, in fact, much more beautiful even than the splendor of King Solomon, Israel's most wealthy and extravagant king. We can read about Solomon's riches and glory in 1 Kings 4 and 2 Chronicles 9. But if God clothes the field with the beauty of wildflowers, which surpasses even Solomon's glory, and which is temporary, how much more will he provide clothing for his children? And yet so often we are of little faith, as Jesus points out. And now Jesus gives some very, very, very encouraging words for those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. His followers do not have to be constantly worried about food and clothing. We don't have to be constantly enslaved to anxiety and fear and worry about the necessities of life. We don't have to be covetous and greedy 
hoarding away things for fear of being left with nothing. We're not to follow the example of the rich fool from the parable or the many myriads of rich fools of no faith in Christ who seek and strive and worry about these things. But why not? Here's the reason. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, as men and women and boys and girls who have been called to faith in Jesus, who have been adopted into God's family, we have a good, loving, kind, caring, wonderful Father. We have a Father who is in control, and our Father already knows what we need. It is our Father who sends rain and sunshine and who is the source of every good gift. It is our Father who feeds the ravens and clothes the fields with flowers and provides care and sustenance for all of his creation. And if he cares for animals and plants, how much more will he care for his children? We don't have to worry because we have a loving Father who cares for us more than we can possibly imagine who loves us with a love that began before the foundation of the world and which will never, ever end. Kids, how many of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible? Some of you, right? Do any of you remember how Sally Lloyd-Jones likes to describe God's love for us? She says that God loves us With a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And because God loves us like that, we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to worry. As you kids start back to school this week or next week or the week after, and you might be tempted to worry, think about God's love for you. Think about the fact that God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love and be comforted. Instead of constantly worrying and being anxious and seeking trinkets and doodads, Jesus tells us what we are to seek. We are to seek God's kingdom. And when God's kingdom is our priority in life, the things that we need will be given to us. This is the prosperity gospel in the true sense. Real prosperity, not false. Not man-centered prosperity, but God-centered When we seek God's kingdom, when we seek to serve him and love him and honor him, and when we seek to do his will and to point others to Jesus and seek to become like Jesus ourselves and to truly follow him, our Father will give us what we need. He'll give us things we actually need, not everything we want and not even everything we think we need, and certainly not what the world thinks we need, but what is truly best for us both now and forever. Because our Father knows exactly what's best for us, and He can and will provide it. Jesus says so. We see it in creation, and we see it throughout Scripture as over and over and over again, God cares for His people. This kind of reliance upon our Father is also shown in the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus taught His disciples to pray, and which you and I prayed together earlier this evening. We ask our Father that His kingdom come. We seek his kingdom first and afterwards ask for our daily bread. In verse 32, Jesus begins to close out this section of teaching and he gives his followers one last exhortation not to fear. Here, the good shepherd addresses his followers as little flock. 
reminding them that they are indeed God's chosen people. The metaphor of God's chosen people as a flock of sheep draws on Old Testament imagery seen in places like Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Micah 7, Psalm 95 and 100. And it reminds us of the unity and unfolding of God's one plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Jesus' use of such language would also have reminded them and should remind us that like sheep, members of the little flock must rely on their shepherd who will provide for them, will provide for their needs as they follow. As I considered this passage, I was reminded over and over again of the 23rd Psalm, which affirms the security and care which the Lord provides for his people. He is indeed our shepherd. And we are the human sheep of his pasture. We are his little flock. Jesus reassures his followers that it is the Father's good pleasure to give them the kingdom. His kingdom, which they are to seek, will be given to them because it is the Father's will. And this promise of the kingdom is not something only in the distant future, but something which is already present, even now, in Jesus Christ, who himself brings the kingdom who himself proclaims good news to the poor, proclaims liberty to captives and to the oppressed, and who himself proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. A few months ago, after one of our Wednesday night devotionals at Bulk Springs Nursing Home, a dear sister told me a story that I think is relevant as we think about applying this passage to our lives. She was sharing with me how when she first moved to the nursing home, she had struggled really, really difficultly with anxiety and depression and fear. The rooms of the nursing home are kind of small if you've not been there, and she had had to get rid of almost everything that she owned. She had to exchange a whole lifetime of stuff for half a room shared with another person. She had no choice but to empty her barns, so to speak. And she had a particularly hard time adjusting to the absence of her stuff. And one day while she was feeling especially down about this, her pastor stopped by. She explained to him why she was upset and complained about how difficult it was to be without stuff. And after listening to her patiently and offering words of encouragement, the pastor eventually asked her a simple very direct question that reminded her of the false security of things and her great need to rest in the providence and promises of God in Jesus Christ. He said to her, I'm not sure what the problem is. Did you think there would be a U-Haul behind your funeral hearse? It's a ridiculous question, isn't it? It's a hard question. And of course, she didn't really think that way, but she had been living as if it were true. Tonight, if you came here weighed down with worry, if you came here filled with anxiety and trusting in things for security instead of trusting in Christ alone, if this describes you, I urge you to turn from trusting in things that can never save or satisfy. Instead, place your trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can truly satisfy, who alone can truly save who alone offers fullness of life now and eternal life with him forever. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are trusting in Jesus, be encouraged. 
you're dealing with anxiety, if you're dealing with worry or depression or fear, let your heart be lightened tonight. When you leave here and you look around at nature, see how your Father cares for creation. See how He feeds birds and grows flowers. And then remember that He cares for you infinitely more. For you, He has provided not only physical bread, but something of vastly more importance. He has provided you with Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. Be free from anxiety and worry. He has already provided for your greatest need in the person and work of His Son. And He loves you vastly more than birds or flowers or grasses, and He has proved it. Trust in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we have heard tonight, and be encouraged. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have loved us from before the foundation of the world. That you have called us to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through him you have reconciled us to yourself and adopted us as your very own sons and daughters, sealing us with your Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. We thank you for your word, which you have breathed out and which you have preserved and which teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains us in righteousness, and which points us always to the truth and beauty of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your creation, which shows us so clearly your divine nature and your eternal power, and which also shows your great love and providential care for all that you have made. Father, we confess that all too often we are distracted by the cares and riches of this world. We confess that we too often seek fulfillment and security in things which can neither fulfill or save. Forgive us, Father, for our covetousness and our greed. Forgive us for losing sight of the truths of your word. Forgive us, Father, for worrying about many things and for failing to seek your kingdom first. Help us, Father, to view and use possessions rightly for your glory and for the spread of your kingdom. Help us to remember that we are merely stewards of the gifts which you so graciously give to us. Grant us freedom in Jesus Christ from worry and anxiety and fear. Help us to remember, as we look on your creation and see your provision, that you care for your children vastly more than any bird or flower or grass. Remind us, Father, help us to remember the words of Jesus preserved in your word for our instruction, that we are not to fear or to be anxious or worried because you are our Father, and you know exactly what we need. Grant us, Father, we the sheep of your little flock, obedience to seek your kingdom first, and great faith that as we obey, you will provide all that we truly need. We ask these things in the holy, precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.